0: Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp. digital agency. Thank you for joining us, now let's go learn something. This week on the Nonprofit News Feed, we have got, in the wake of the Uvalde school shooting Information about how gun rights advocacy is actually increasing for some nonprofits and a number of other summary articles following coming after uh, this Memorial Day
1: weekend. Nick, how's it? It's going good, George. We have a lot to cover this week. So, of course, the first story we're going to talk about is uh, around what happened in Uvalde and broader conversations about gun rights and gun control advocacy groups. So last week, on May 24th, a gunman opened fire at the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, killing 19 students, two teachers, and wounding 17 others. And this terrific shooting has rekindled a decades-long debate in the United States between gun control and gun rights advocates. Uh, Now, within economically developed countries, the United States by far outnumbers others in terms of both gun ownership and gun deaths per capita, um, but along the debate about how to solve gun violence, you have gun rights advocacy groups on one side and gun control advocacy groups on the other. Uh, we wanted to highlight an article from the Washington Post which is talking about a little bit of the landscape change on the side of the gun rights advocacy groups, We've talked about this on this podcast before, how the NRA has suffered from lots of infighting and legal challenges and just as a whole has seen its reputation damaged quite significantly over the past couple of years. Um, But as the Washington Post points out, a lot of other tax exempt organizations now seem to be filling the void um, and potentially taking the lead on the gun rights Side of uh, the issue here. The National Association for Gun Rights is a 501c4 group that often criticizes the NRA for being too compromising. Saw that revenue increase to 15 million, up from just 6 million in 2019. And the article cites that lots of other gun rights groups have seen similar increases in revenue and capacity. So the takeaway here is that what was a very consolidated uh landscape in terms of advocacy with one go-to group is now splintering and other groups are taking the place uh and serving the role once filled by the nra but george this comes as the nra held its annual conference in texas just three days after the shooting um, this conference was on uh, last friday and it's a, it's a fraught moment in the united states and Um, you know, personally, I I think that that gun control and gun safety needs to be adapted upon and legislated upon. And unfortunately, that won't happen. But interesting, nonetheless, to see the landscape on the gun rights side changing pretty significantly here.
0: Yeah, it's sort of inevitable. The thought that tamping down the NRA's ability to sort of fundraise and operate uh, effectively to assume that that would stop. The progress of of guns in this country and it's unbelievable power in terms of putting money into politics is, is errant, right? It is, it's sort of targeting their energy at the, the wrong enemy because like a hydro, when you cut off its head, two more show up in its place. Inevitably, the source of the money is not going away. The amount of guns purchased after an event like this inevitably increases. And that simply puts more money in the hands of manufacturers, which then finds its way inevitably into any functioning nonprofit willing to carry the flag of of gun rights over human rights. And so, you know, in a moment like this, there's a, you know, a rare opportunity to get the country's attention and to focus on something. I am having a hard time finding faith in Congress that immediately chose the bold action of going on vacation. and. Leadership that finds just polar polar views. Interesting narratives that I've seen coming out here uh, are is around the fact that we actually had a ban on assault rifles, had a ban, and if you look at the number of mass shootings prior to two thousand and four, when it went out of effect, right, it was put into place in nineteen ninety four by President then Bill Clinton. The number of mass shootings go up. The question that is just hard to reconcile is why. You know, 18 year olds or frankly, anyone needs access to high capacity, uh, firearms, if not to kill other people, it, it makes zero sense other than to line the pockets of these manufacturers under this like misconceived notion of the right to bear arms and it's absurd extent, you know, why, why draw the line of assault rights? Shouldn't we all have, uh, you know, explosives? Why am I put on terrorist watch list if I buy? uh, extreme amounts of fertilizer. It's because you intend to do harm to large amounts of people. There are potential solutions being talked about that that could work. And you mentioned the sort of larger fact of how America has more guns than other countries. You said, uh, a lot more though, you know, and I think it's important to note that our, our guns, our guns per hundred people are 120 guns per people. The next closest is Canada at 34 guns per people. You know, that there are more guns than there are people here. Yeah. And somehow we continue to, to purchase more. And then that inevitably leads to gun murders per a hundred thousand, which is 30 times worse than Australia's and uh, a number of times worse than Canada's. We're at 3.4 deaths per a Canada is at 0. 0.6. So, you know, I think what needs to happen differently this time than the last time when we had a tragedy of this magnitude, which was sadly, you know, Sandy Hook, December of 2012 is a reasonable step forward. It's easy to respond extreme to extreme, but I think you, what I'm saying you, I I think progressive legislators, advocates, nonprofits, people speaking to this need to couch the anger and rage and focus on small wins, which feels just Painful to say, but small wins and steps toward reasonable controls on anywhere that you can gain this. And I, I'm not going to list the number of policies out there, but there are areas where Americans all can agree and should agree. So I think i'm I'm being very sort of moderate in my expectation. Uh, I'm also analyzing some Google trends and seeing that so far we actually haven't hit the overall surges search volume that we saw about a decade ago um, in 2013, far from it in terms of Google Trends searches for gun control as a topic. So uh, I haven't seen it take off as high as it probably needs to, to actually move the needle. And again, Congress going on a brave vacation during this time uh, is going to slow any potential policy. So the question is, or for how long can this stay in the media narrative and hopefully not get taken over also by counter narrative, which is going to be incredibly attractive to take, which is why the sheriff overseeing this, uh, this, this tragedy chose to wait for over 50 minutes to take action. And that's, that's not the point. The point is there's an 18 year old who needed medical help. And instead he got help from a local gun store.
1: George, I I definitely agree with you. I, I think to your point for too long. Folks on the, the the side of the policy debate about wanting stricter gun control have uh, propped up the NRA as this kind of boogeyman. But the truth of the matter is, is that there is an ideological divide in this country. And there are a lot of people who repeatedly vote in candidates who are very pro-gun. And that, that ideological messaging on the right is is extreme. And I think it's beyond just money and lobbyists. It's a genuine ideological, perhaps demagogue, but it's an ideological difference. And I think that for folks who are looking for solutions need to understand that it's not just countering dark money in politics, it's actually changing minds and having those debates and meeting people where they're at, to your point about small wins. Um, But something something. We'll continue to watch, and, and unfortunately, I'm not super hopeful as well. But that being said, um, you have to track, and, and we'll keep trying. And this year, we have a chance to, to try again. So, uh, something, a, a story, and a narrative. We'll continue to watch. All right, shifting gears a little bit, I can take us into the summary. This one comes from NBC in Chicago, and it's about a nonprofit beginning to track anti. Asian hate crimes in the Midwest. So over the course of the pandemic, uh, organizations that, that track statistics of, um, uh, hate crimes against Asian Americans have seen an over 300% increase. And this particular organization, the Asian American foundation, um, is setting up a program to track hate crimes and AAPI violence while providing legal and other support to vi- victims on, um, the goal to build trust um, and break down barriers with communities, particularly immigrant communities or non-native English speaking communities, um, to to help these folks feel supported in a time where unfortunately they're seeing uh, a surge in violence against them. And I live in New York and there's been really tragically high profile um, hate crimes against Asian folks in, in the New York city area. So this is something that's, that's very close to, to us. And I know a lot of here, a lot of us here at, at Whole Whale. So, um, just awesome work from a nonprofit stepping up to fill that do- that void when it comes to data and reporting. And that is hugely important when it comes to creating policy decisions and other sorts of interventions to address such violence.
0: Yeah, I think it's important that they're going after not the qualitative but the quantitative on this one trying to document and get the data of what's going on so you can really understand the scope of the problem there's one thing to say one-off events say like it's easy then for the public to say oh yeah but that's just like one lone actor as opposed to the the larger incidents going up so yeah i I like this virtual absolutely all right our
1: next story is Interesting one, and this comes from the Chronicle of p and it talks about how the Buffets um, have stopped funding programs that support women and girls, particularly in the United States. So this article talks about um, the foundation, um, the the Novo Foundation, uh, quote unquote, stunned the nonprofit world by announcing at the height of the pandemic that it was halting funding critical programs focused on women and girls and the article goes on to talk with some of the uh, uh grant recipient organizations that have been on the the rece- had been on the receiving end of, of such funding seeing it suddenly dry up and uh the, the the tldr of this article is that when it comes to corporate philanthropy single seemingly split second decisions can have really lasting and unfortunate ramifications and uh, the article kind of goes on to talk about the, the need for organizations to diversify funding, which is, of course, easier said than done. Um, but, George, what's your take on this story? You know, we covered the NOVA Foundation pullout
0: and shift, and this is just the second order or logical next order effect of that, where, you know, the NOVA Foundation accounted for or reported 96% of funding for that type of work. And it's just, it's, it's unfortunate because it is uh, then a cliff and ra- raises questions about, you know, was this... You know, especially if they're trying to term long-term impact, it's hard to do when your funding can dry up overnight. So, you know, a call for much more responsible philanthropy and just just a warning for anyone whose funding relies heavily, 70%, 50% more on one source.
1: All right. Our next story comes from 9news.com, KUSA, and it's about Coloradans being asked to take a water conservation pledge this is kind of a cool one. It's called the Water 22 Pledge, and it includes 22 ways for every Coloradan to save 22 gallons of water every day. And according to this nifty infographic, um, if each Coloradan saves 22 gallons per day, that's 8,000 gallons per year, or approximately 48 billion gallons per year for the statewide. So uh, this, of course, addressing some uh, climate concerns around uh, oh, yeah. drought and, and lack of uh, clean water um, and, and really, really dangerously low water levels out there. Um, so uh, I love it. I love this this kind of educational approach to addressing uh, environmental impacts. And, of course, it takes much more than that. But the fact that this is just one uh, kind of component of that, I think, is, is really cool and something we're going to need a hell of a lot more of um, as we start and continue to tackle the climate crisis head on.
0: Yeah, I like stories like these sort of nonprofits stepping up for water crises, which are absolutely going to happen across the West, Midwest, this summer based on what they're reporting. I think those, those points are incredibly important, but the practical environmental scientist that I, I once potentially wanted to be in, in college uh, has to also point to the fact that in terms of water consumption, agricultural water use uh, is 89% of Colorado State wide usage. So, you know, the the individuals, you know, cutting back certainly helps. But I, I think there's also a lot of room for improved farming practices and uh, smart irrigation systems that can save quite a bit more if we're just being logical about it. So. You know, I, I see stories like this. I'm excited about citizens getting in there, but I hope it doesn't stop there and also, you know, allocates for more intelligent, more intelligent ways to
1: save. Absolutely. Our next story is from CNBC, and it says the tax breaks aren't the prime reason for high net worth philanthropy according to a study. So the study conducted by BNY, Mellon Wealth Management, um, asserts that In fact, tax benefits are not the primary reason that people donate to charity, um, including um, hyper wealthy people. Um, And the top reasons for charitable giving include they're donating to a special cause, they wanna see impact or they wanna give back or increase their legacy. Um, So maybe the folks who are a little too cynical about uh, charitable giving should, should take a look at this and. And of course, you know, there's exceptions. to <laughs> well, um, But it restores your faith a little bit. And it talks about, interestingly, and perhaps more importantly, trends amongst younger people, millennials and Gen Z, while still building up wealth. George, you talk a lot about the greatest wealth transfer in history, and it's about to come our way, um, increasing trends in terms of young people uh, donating and caring about uh, social impact.
0: Yeah, quote in here, the younger generations are more charitably inclined and they care more about impact and nearly three quarters of high net worth millennials and eight and 10 Gen Xers, investors have a charitable giving strategy uh, according to this report. And I think it's important to note that the, the rising generation and the rising generation, frankly, a million multimillionaires seem to have that type of lens and probably parked under the effective philanthropy uh, effective philanthropy, effective altruist type of mantra where they, you know, the care of where the dollars go in terms of trackable impact into causes and issues that that serve a greater systemic solution, I would say. Uh, also, you know, notably people like um, one of the youngest uh, new billionaires out there in crypto, Sam bankman fried is also said to be making money so that he can spend money aggressively uh, in um in his work and it's a good trend to be aware of as you know one large donor can can make a quite a quite a difference especially as how you craft your your narratives and communications to your general audience because inevitably there are probably a power law
1: dynamic of one percent of that audience has 99 percent of the wealth definitely that's a, a great analysis and something i guess we'll see play out over time, but George, I've a feel-good story to finish this off. All right. All right. This comes from kdhnews.com, the Killian Daily Herald, and it's about a nonprofit keeping the Memorial Day tradition alive at playing taps. The Mecca TX, Multi-Educational Cross-Cultural Arts of Central Texas, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating and spreading the awareness of cultural music and dance. Gathered to play taps at veterans' graves in honor of their service and sacrifice this Memorial Day. And it talks about Mecca Tech's leader and retired U.S. Army Colonel Daniel Cott, who is 90, who began this year's remembrance um, at the grave of his friend, um, another former board member of this nonprofit, retired Sergeant First Class Jose Landas. So uh, music can be an important and valuable way to serve that part of our, our light journey and uh, recognizing um, friends fallen in war, celebrating life, mourning life, and just overall expression. And then music is really important to me and I know to a lot of other people. And this is great to see a nonprofit uh, using it to, to pay their respects this Memorial Day. A beautiful
0: way to remember people that have given the ultimate sacrifice for the freedoms that we enjoy here. So yes, to, to the veterans and to the people that are remembering Memorial Day, uh, it's much appreciated and like to see nonprofits involved in keeping these types of traditions alive.
1: Thanks, Nick. Thanks, George.
0: This has been Using the Whole Whale Podcast.